About a month ago, uh, give or take a week, a part, as a part of our great Prince of Peace get-together service, Pastor Chad preached on this text that Rachel read for us this morning from Hebrews 4. Uh, he focused on why we can't ignore the parts of Scripture that are difficult to hear. So it's no mistake, really, that this gospel lesson is what was paired with this Hebrew text as it came around in the lectionary. This Hebrews text in verse 12 said, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I don't know about you, but I sure felt that in today's gospel, the double-edged sword. We are still in the series of discipleship lessons from Jesus about what it looks like, really, actually looks like to follow Jesus. And as in previous weeks, Jesus does not take it easy on us in this reading from Mark. A young man asks how to inherit eternal life, and Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. And then when the man says that he does, Jesus then says, well, go sell all your possessions and follow me. And if that wasn't sharp enough for you, uh, Jesus then turns to those with him and says how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So yeah, it is sharp and difficult, just like that two-edged sword. And it's cutting because, if we're really honest, most of us know we are wealthy. We, we know it, right? The average yearly earning of those living in the United States is $37,000 a year. That's average. A third of the world's population lives with an annual earning of less than $375 a year. So, yes, we are wealthy. Even if we struggle, even if sometimes it's hard to pay our bills, we know we are wealthy. We know how lucky we are. We know how fortunate we are to have the blessings we have. That is why we try our hardest to make this text say something else. That's why we are tempted to make it less difficult. Now, maybe you've heard some sermons that try to do this very thing. I definitely have. I was at a church I went to right after college where the pastor said, you know, Jesus spoke these words to that guy, not to us. It's just for that guy. And thank goodness, right? That made me feel so much better about this text. Never mind that almost never does Jesus give a word that isn't meant for everyone. In fact, even in this very text, he turns to his disciples, those gathered around him, not just that guy, but all those around him, and says, how difficult is it for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God? So as much as we want it to be for that guy, it's not just for that guy. I've heard sermons where they say Jesus knew, he knew that this young man had not, in fact, kept all of those commands. So Jesus was essentially calling this guy's bluff. Or I've also heard that, you know, no one can actually keep all the laws and no one could actually sell all of their things. And so this is really a sermon where Jesus is calling our bluff. 
I've even heard a sermon that spent a long time talking about how the eye of the needle was the name of a gate in a city where camels couldn't fit through it, and that Jesus was being literal here and not metaphorical, which my Hebrew professor shot down many times in class, saying that is not true. There is no gate named eye of the needle, which tries to make this text feel easier, right? Most of what these ways are, are textual gymnastics to make us feel better about our guilt when we hear this passage. Because we also don't want to give up our stuff. And as hard as I will also try not to, I'm pretty sure I'm still going to say some things that will try to make this text less difficult and less hard to hear. Because none of us really want to hear this word. We don't want to feel bad when we hear what it takes to be a disciple. So as things often do in Mark's gospel, uh, the order matters, right? The, the order of how Mark tells this text, shares this text matter. So a few things to take note of as we go through it. First, the young man comes up to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, right? Now, any of you paying close attention to the text may have noticed that Jesus rattles off six not ten commandments. And actually, he kind of combines the two covet commandments into one, so really he's given seven commandments to this guy. Are you following these seven commandments? He left out three. And it's intentional, I think, that Jesus leaves out the three about God. When this guy comes running up to him to ask, how might I inherit eternal life, Jesus starts with the commandments about how you are treating your neighbor. He says, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't defraud, and honor your father and mother, right? Those are the, the last half of what we know as the Ten Commandments. And this man says, I've done that, I've done that, Jesus, I've kept them all. Now, we don't know if this is correct or not. Jesus doesn't correct him or say, you know, you know probably not. Or, hey, remember that one time you did that one thing to your dad? Or even, you know, extreme wealth is usually gained at the expense of someone else. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus looks at the man and loves him. Now, this is the only time, and, and it's important that it's the only time, in Mark's whole gospel where someone is given that action from Jesus. Jesus loved him. Before he knew how that young man would respond to what was going to happen next, Jesus loves him. The order of things matters. So then Jesus says, you know, there's just one one thing, one thing you lack still. And I think at this moment the guy's probably feeling pretty pretty confident. He's like, just one more, I got this. I mean, I've done all these other things. I have lots of money. I can, can pay whatever you need me to pay. or I can buy the thing you need. I've got lots of things. And Jesus says, sell everything you own, give that money to the poor, and come, follow me. I love that in this moment, the disciples look at each other and say, well then, if we're supposed to do that, how is anyone going to be saved? Like, nobody's going to do this. And I feel like Jesus sort of like, yeah, exactly. 
See, we work hard to make this text less, less, less difficult so that we can take credit for the things we've done to inherit eternal life. I lived a good life. I follow the commandments. I do it all. I do good stuff. I, I, I. I did it. And Jesus clearly says, salvation is not up to you. In fact, he goes even further and says, it's impossible for you. But not for me. What I've found to be powerful about this text, this time around, as I've struggled with not making it easier or more palatable for me or for you, is that when this wealthy man makes his choice, he chooses his wealth, his stuff, over a relationship, over people, over a connection with God. He says, by his keeping of the commandments, that he does care for his neighbor, right? I'm doing all this stuff. I'm doing the things you want me to do. But how far is he willing to go for the sake of his neighbor? Preaching professor and pastor Dr. Caroline Lewis said that in this text, wealth is the problem. This text is about money. As much as we don't want it to be about money, we want to make it about all sorts of other stuff. She says, it is the problem because wealth without connection will pull you away from relationships with God and with others, which leads to isolation. Wealth without serving the other leads to narcissism. Wealth without loving another exposes a lack of empathy. And wealth without risk of answering an invitation to something bigger, something outside of yourself or your plan, leads to fear. Seems about right, doesn't it? When Jesus offers up an invitation to this man to be a part of this community, this group of disciples, he just can't let go of his stuff. I mean, he's looking at Jesus, Son of God. He's looking at Jesus and says, I just can't do it. He's looking at Jesus and thinks something that he has is the thing that will save him. He just can't give it up. And that's what I've been thinking about this week of my stuff. What, what things do I have that I think will save me? What things do I choose over community, over relationships with God and with others? I don't usually do a spring cleaning, but I do a fall cleaning at our house, mostly because I think I realize I'm going to be stuck inside of my house for the next five months, and I don't want it to be so full of stuff, right? Just look around, I'm like, I can't be in this place for five months. i got to throw everything away. And when I do that, we're always choosing, what things can I get rid of, right? What things do I need and not need? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to get rid of that. I, that has meaning. It's special. Our daughter's the same way. She'll, <laughs> she'll be like, oh, I want that. Don't get rid of that. And we're like, you haven't literally looked at it in three years, but cool. We'll hang on to it. Right? What of my stuff do I think will save me? What do I refuse to let go of, trying to drag along with me as I follow Jesus? What things have I been asked to sell or give away, but I just can't do it? 
One of my friends said she was never more aware of the temptation to think our things will save us than she was while registering for baby supplies. <laughs> she said, you know, going through Target and being like, maybe this, maybe this diaper wipe warmer will be the thing that makes everything okay. Or maybe the perfect nook or bottle will do it, right? Or, or maybe it's the diaper genie, like you can't survive without a diaper genie, right? I, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this parenthood thing, so I better get all the stuff that's going to save me as I try to do this weird job of being a parent. And, and yes, the diaper genie is nice, but what saves you in the middle of the night when you're going on two hours of sleep is not the diaper genie. It's the other friend you have that's also a parent who's also up in the middle of the night who you know is also awake and you can text or talk to them and be like, listen, I am not okay right now. I'm so tired and my kid won't stop crying. It's the, it's the onesie that somebody has drawn on for you, because that's a thing we do at baby showers now, that you put on your kid after they've gone through their 10th blowout of the day, and you're like, I can't do this. And then you pick up this onesie, and you're like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Oh, the onesie. Yes, that was maybe a real story right there. <clears throat> Or it's the friend who shows up at your door with food and tells you, I will hold your baby while you take a nap or a shower, or maybe both right when you need it most. I've been thinking about this so much lately. Oh, I I told earlier, I was like, I'm going to read this next part, and I'm not going to cry, and then I cried anyway at the first service, so we'll see. But a friend of mine died recently, and none of my training about grief, nor all the chocolate, which I did try, or wine, which I also tried, or comfy blankets, or episodes of Queer Eye made it better. I tried all of those. But what did was my group of friends. The ones who shared our love and loss together, who called and texted and showed up for each other. The ones who, and this is true, call ourselves the wolf pack and howl at the end of every video chat. Yes, we really actually do that. Our stuff doesn't save us. And boy, do we try to make it so. We try relationships do community does our relationship with each other and with god this mutual community of disciples we are called to be in that is what saves us jesus is who saves us jesus is calling into something different than stuff different even than following all the right rules or checking off the right boxes Today's text is an invitation as much as it is an indictment. Come, follow me. But you can't carry all that crap with you. Jesus is asking us to choose people and community over isolation and stuff. Give it all away. Follow me. That was literal. He meant it. He is not calling our bluff. He is asking us to see what matters. What, or maybe better, how much are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Everything? And then comes Peter, our favorite, Peter. I picture him sort of puffing up his chest and being like, well, we did that. 
We, we gave up everything to follow you. Gold star, please. And Jesus again reminds them that their sacrifice will be rewarded. But also for the third time in as many weeks, Jesus says the first will be last, Peter, and the last will be first. It does not look like you think it's going to look. Remember, Peter? This discipleship thing is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. It's hard. It cuts. This is what Mark's gospel does today. It's that double-edged sword that hurts. It opens us up and it makes us vulnerable. It shows us all the ways in which we fall short and we do All the ways we try to maneuver our way through a text so we don't feel so bad. So we can alleviate some of our guilt. So we can keep our stuff. But we are guilty, and that is hard to admit. And it is so vulnerable. In today's Hebrews text, it said we are laid bare to God. This is what The double-edged sword does it, opens us up and lays us bare. We are vulnerable. But because we have Jesus, the one who sympathizes with our weakness, then, Hebrews said, we can approach God with boldness. Despite being laid bare, we can come to God boldly and then receive mercy and find grace. Jesus loved that man, but he missed out. He missed out by choosing his stuff. He did not get a chance in that moment, maybe later, but in that moment, he did not get a chance to receive mercy and find grace. Salvation is impossible for you, Jesus said. Because he knew we we like our stuff. But it's not for me. It's not impossible for me. And I am here for you. Not impossible for me. And I am here for you. And that is the good news. Despite this hard.